Well, every Sunday is a glorious celebration of the risen Savior. It's a blessed, joyous meeting of the people of God who meet with God. And so every Lord's Day is special, but some of my favorite Lord's Days are when we get to see people be baptized. Uh, It's a mark of their faith, and it's a mark of God's work of grace in their lives. And so later today in our service, we'll do just that. But let's now turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, if you have a Bible with you this morning. We've been studying in the book of Mark together in recent weeks, and we've been seeing in its pages a growing clamor over this question. Who is this man? This man, Jesus. Who is this man? We've seen different people in Jesus' time, recorded here in Mark, asking uh, any variety of that question, and then answering it in a variety of different ways from one person to the next. The question of Jesus' identity and the variety of answers to that question reaches a heightened and jam-packed level as we come to chapter 3 today. It seems to me what's unique in chapter 3 compared with the rest of Mark is that here Jesus is impossible to ignore. He's impossible to ignore. You see several scenes, we'll see several different kinds of people, and we'll see several different responses to Jesus, some good, some bad. But in each of these, Jesus is impossible to ignore. And I think the same is true even still today. If you're here today, isn't it proof? Jesus is impossible to ignore. You might not be a Christian, not yet. Maybe a friend invited you to come, and for some strange reason, you're still scratching your head why you did this. You said yes. Maybe a friend is going to be baptized later in our service today, and he invited you or she invited you to come, and and you're supporting that even though you, you haven't yet embraced that. Well, you might not, by the end of today, come to believe in Jesus and receive him for all that he is. But hopefully, at least you'll agree that he's impossible to ignore. And that you have to reckon with him. You have to reckon with him. You have to come to a conclusion about who this man was or is. You have to come to a conclusion about why we're here today. On the other side of the globe, 2,000 years later, still talking about him, even worshiping him. As C.S. Lewis famously wrote, he said, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So is Jesus crazy or the Christ? Is he satanic or this world's only savior? Is he demonic or is he deity? 
In Mark chapter 3, we'll see several scenes, several kinds of people. We see a crowd, we see demons, we see apostles, we see opponents of Jesus, and we see his true disciples, which he also calls his true family. Each has a slightly different, or in some cases, a very different opinion of Jesus. We looked at the the first six verses of Mark chapter 3 last week because it really is connected more to chapter 2. These chapter headings are added. Uh, These weren't originally written by the apostles who wrote this down. So today we begin with verse 7 of Mark 3. Let's read that. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. We'll stop there. There's the first group, the crowd. We see first the crowd's great fascination. Their great fascination with Jesus. And it's a great crowd. But we're told that twice in as many verses. It's a great crowd, a big crowd. They come to Jesus from quite a distance. Some of these areas listed there are over 120 miles away from where Jesus was at this point. 120 miles is no big deal for us with cars. But this is a different day, a different time. 120 miles was a a big task, quite a challenge. They come from quite a distance. They come from all over. It's a diverse crowd, likely, because in some of these regions, they were more Gentile than Jew in their makeup. That by itself is remarkable, because these were highly polarized, even quite segregated times and cultures there. And the size of the crowd and the frenetic interest of this crowd makes this a dangerous scene. It's dangerous. It's not just good and exciting, but it's dangerous. Jesus says to his men, get a boat ready in case the crowd squeezes in so tightly around me that we can use the boat as like a pressure release valve. I'll go onto the boat and they they won't be able to squeeze me in. Have you been in crowds like that before? Maybe when a sporting event lets out and you're with this mass of people and Each step is two inches or one inch. It's the shuffle you do shoulder to shoulder. You're bumping up against people. Or even worse, as you've seen video, no doubt, of soccer or football, as they call it, in other countries. And in other countries, they they come to these soccer things, and a lot of them end in emergency uh, rooms and, and ambulances showing up because people have been squished, sometimes literally to death because of the size size of the crowd. A giant crowd here. A little later in the chapter, the crowd is referred to again in a different but equally telling way. Verse 20, they went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. But why this great crowd? Why this growing interest in Jesus? He's just a teacher, he's even an unofficial teacher, what we would call today an unordained preacher, maybe. Why this preacher? Why this interest? 
Well, the people have heard of his power over sickness and disease, his power over demons. And we've seen that in Mark so far. There have been several stories. In more than the several stories, we've also gotten summaries from Mark, the narrator, who says things like, he healed many and he cast out many demons. We were told in chapter 1 that his fame had spread everywhere. And so now this great crowd in chapter 3 pressed around him to touch him. And that sounds noble, doesn't it? It sounds like a good thing. Jesus does heal. He has healed. Apparently, people in this crowd believe he can heal them. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, but subtly, Mark paints this crowd in a less than stellar light. In fact, almost every time Mark talks about the crowd, quote unquote, the crowd, uh, it's negative, not good. The crowd are almost always those who are interested in Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. They're fascinated with him, or maybe they simply want something from him and believe he can give it to them, but they don't truly believe. This crowd in chapter 3 presses in to touch him, to get healing from him. It's a very different picture than the one we'll see at the end of this chapter. There, it's a crowd again, but it's a crowd, not the crowd. And it's a crowd of disciples, and they're true disciples. And this crowd at the end of the chapter is sitting around him, sitting underneath him. They're, they're listening to his teaching, no doubt. They're gentle and patient. The crowd that we're reading about here in verses 7 through 10, though, seems more interested in what Jesus can do than what Jesus has to say. And that's a problem because Jesus has already made it clear. He came to preach. He came to preach. There's a priority to his preaching ministry. You see, the miracles without the preaching don't tell us who he is. It's just power. It just shows us something. It's just impressive. But Jesus says in chapter 1, I must go and preach. That's why I came. So if you're not a Christian, you should know this, that the first step, is starting to see who Jesus is rather than what he can do for you. As we saw in chapter 2, we need to let him tell us what we need. The man there was paralyzed and thought he needed healing, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. He needed forgiveness. But it starts with first figuring out and seeing who Jesus is. The fact that there's a great crowd here proves nothing about Jesus' identity or his worth. Big crowds assemble all the time, still today, for anything. Uh, games, concerts, rallies, big churches, whatever. They mean nothing about the worth of the thing for which that crowd has gathered. This crowd has assembled for the right one, Jesus, but again, not for the right reasons. They simply don't know yet who he is. Some of them, no doubt, will eventually come to know who he is truly. But many of them surely never did. So here's the takeaway. It is possible to be around Jesus, to have interest in Jesus, 
to make sacrifices, to get to Jesus, to have exuberant interest in Jesus and still not know him, or even more importantly, not be known by him. But guess who does know him? Guess who knows who this is? In the same scene, demons know who this is. That's the second group, the demons. The demons' futile, conf- futile confession. Their futile confession in verse 11 and 12. It says there, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is very similar to what we saw in chapter 1 of Jesus' encounter with a demon there. And the demon there in verse 24 says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And the demon asked, have you come to destroy us? In other words, is it time? Is it now? See, demons know who he is and they know what he came to do. The kingdom of God has come in the coming of Jesus. And that means the toppling of Satan's empire, or at least the start of it. And the exercise of demons is proof that that's beginning to happen. Jesus will talk more about this later in this chapter of Mark 3. But notice how these demons in verse 11 almost uncontrollably fall down before him and confess him. It's like a foreshadow of Philippians 2, that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee should or will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. These demons in Mark 3 cry out, you are the Son of God. God the Father said the same thing. God the Father said in chapter 1, you are my beloved son. So the demons get it right. They know who he is. They make a correct identification of Jesus. They make a feigned acknowledgement of Jesus. It's not one in faith. It's not one in worship. It's feigned. And hence it's a futile, futile confession. They know who he is, and yet they crumple in dread and are hurled out of men that they have come to possess. Ironically, the one group in chapter 3 who really knows who this is and really knows who it is now, not later, the one group are the demons, and they want nothing to do with him, and yet they can't avoid him because of the collision course that is happening. Jesus strictly ordered them not to make him known, it says in verse 12. Why? Well, for one big reason, he's not going to let demons be his messengers. He's not going to let them witness for him. But as we saw in weeks past, too, Jesus keeps wraps on his identity in the gospel accounts, uh, partly because he wants this drama to move along at its It's purposeful pace. He doesn't want it to move along too quickly. He also doesn't want people to rally around a title like king or messiah while they inject their own meaning into that term king 
or Messiah. The people around Jesus are going to have to slowly see what kind of king and Messiah he's come to be. It's not one that they expect. Even Peter, as far as chapter 8, he's the first one to say, you are the Christ. And right after he says it, he tells the Lord, no, 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 you will not go to the cross. You will not be crucified. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. That's what it means to be the Christ. Now thirdly, the twelve's unique appointment. We're now introduced to the apostles as apostles. The twelve are appointed as apostles in verses 13 to 19. They were in many ways the first disciples We saw the calling of Levi, the tax collector, and Peter and Andrew and James and John in earlier chapters. Yet they were unique for their time. They weren't simply the first disciples. Apostle doesn't mean first disciple. It means sent ones or messengers. And here in Mark 3 is where that became official. But that's getting slightly ahead of ourselves. Notice in verse 13, Mark tells us, about the disciples in general, true disciples. Verse 13 says, He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. This group is in contrast with the crowd that we learned about earlier in the chapter. The crowd seeks Jesus on their own terms. But Jesus here is seeking those whom he calls those whom he desired to call. And he's calling them on his own terms, like he called, well, Peter and Andrew and James and John and Levi. His initiative, his terms. And like those he's already called, these here, they came to him, it says in verse 13. They followed him, they came to him. And then from among that group, we don't know how many at this stage, but from among that group that he called up to the mountain and to himself, he appointed 12. Verse 14. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12. And then the 12 are named. We won't read those names. Most of you have already read that before, a list of the apostles in the Bible. But we should know the last of the apostles that's listed here. In verse 19, he's not just named. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Remember, Mark knew how the story ended before he ever began to write this thing we call the gospel According to Mark, and so he writes from the very beginning with the end in mind. He writes each story with the end in mind. And every story, in a sense, gives a nudge and a wink toward the cross and the resurrection. As someone has put it, the gospel accounts are like passion narratives. Passion being the week of passion around Jesus' death and resurrection. The gospel accounts are like passion narratives with long introductions. That's kind of true, isn't it? Here we see one. Here's a wink and a nudge. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We know where it's going. Just tuck that away. 
while we consider the otherwise happy and good thing about the Twelve's unique appointment. What is their ministry going to be? What will it be comprised of? Verse 14 and 15, it lists three things. That they may be with him, it says. Now, don't just think communion and fellowship and hanging out time, though I'm sure that was a big part of it. But they must be with him because they will be witnesses. They will write this stuff down, and they'll write down stuff that they saw firsthand. We were there. We saw that. We heard that. We heard the voice of the Father when he spoke, this is my beloved son. He's also going to send them out to preach. He wants them to be with him, and he wants to send them out to preach, and verse 15, to have authority to cast out demons. Now, in Mark chapter 6, we'll see Jesus send the the 12 out on a, a mission, a practice mission almost, to do this very thing. And we'll get there in a few weeks, Mark chapter 6. But we also know that in the book of Acts, there is that apostolic ministry unfolded. This very thing that Jesus called them to do, to be with him and to represent him to the world, to preach him, to have authority over the demonic. And we also read in the epistles, the letters they wrote, about how important apostles really are. For the church. Ephesians 2, for instance, says the church, the household of God, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church is built on apostles. You say, is it? Well, yeah, the church is built on the New Testament. The church is built on scripture. They wrote it down. They wrote down what they saw. But back to the narrative and the chronology of where we are in Mark 3, these apostles are going to have to slowly learn who Jesus is and what he came to do. And in the process, they're going to fumble around a little bit in the investigation. They're going to fumble around in understanding Jesus' purposes for them. In many ways, though, they were called to do what every Christian is called to, to do. Every Christian who's been called since... What they've been called to do is to be with Jesus and to represent him to the world and to be extensions of his hands and feet in this world. And yet, as we'll talk about in future weeks, the apostles are more unique than just that. They were unique to their time and they were unique in their time. Tuck that away. On to the next scene and the next group of people is fourthly, the opponents. And the opponents is... We see the opponent's grave doubt. The opponent's grave doubt. Probably the biggest section of what we're looking at here today. Verses 20 to 30. And actually, there are two groups of opponents here. Two groups of opponents in the rest of the chapter of Mark 3. The the second group isn't surprising. Religious leaders. They're always the opponents of Jesus, apart from demons. That's not surprising. We've seen them already bristle at Jesus and plan his demise but the first kind of opponent here in mark 3 is shocking it's jesus's family his family his family thinks he's crazy verse 20 then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat and when his family heard it 
they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Did you know this was here? My daughter this week said, I have never heard that. Incredulous. Like I made it up or something. It's shocking if it seems like I didn't run into that or I forgot about that. It's because it's only in Mark. Mark is the only one that includes this exceedingly negative comment about Jesus' family. Of course, we know that eventually Jesus' family came around. We know Mary was at the cross, worshipfully and, and, and humbly and obediently. Um, we know that Jesus' brother James became the, the you know, lead pastor or preaching pastor, whatever you call it, of the Jerusalem church. But here in Mark 3, and we're not told how long, but, but here in Mark 3, at least for some time, his family heard about the crowds and the clamor about Jesus, and they concluded that he's out of his mind. He's mad. And they went out to seize him, to stop him, to muzzle him, to get him home behind closed doors and closed windows. We'll see the family come to do that in verse 31, actually. For now, Mark switches scenes. In verse 22, he switches scenes to what is happening as they're traveling, you could say. As the family's traveling down to go see Jesus, someone else, some other group, is traveling as well. Religious leaders. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. So his family thinks he's crazy, and the religious leaders think he's possessed by a demon. Beelzebul, or Beelzebub elsewhere, is an obscure term, but the context clearly tells us what it refers to. The prince of demons, verse 22, or Satan. It's not clear whether this claim that Jesus casts out demons by the power of Satan was meant as a smear campaign or it was really their conclusion of the matter. Nevertheless, they say it. It's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. That's where he gets his power. Notice that they don't deny the power. They don't deny that demons are being cast out. They don't deny that people are being healed. They don't say, well, well, that guy wasn't really sick. He duped us. They don't say, that guy wasn't really demon-possessed. He's just angry, and you've made him happy. That's it. That's not a miracle. No one says that, though. There's no denying that people have been miraculously healed and rescued. But rather than... Rather than embrace the one who is healed, or at least humbly inquire more about him, they say, he's a demon. He has a demon. He's from Satan. And then Jesus dismantles this ridiculous logic. Verse 23, look at this. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. 
Jesus says, boys, that doesn't make any sense. I'm opposing Satan by the power of Satan. Satan is going against Satan. Who's going to win, Satan or Satan? It doesn't make any sense. And then he turns it around on them. He tells them what doesn't make sense, and then he tells them what does make sense. Satan's kingdom is indeed coming to an end. And then look at verse 27. Because no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And in the process, he is decimating the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is that stronger man who has entered Satan's house, this world, and he is now plundering Satan's goods. Exorcisms are proof. What Satan owned, Jesus is reclaiming. Exorcisms are windows into what's happening on an unseen, in an unseen realm. Jesus is the strong man. He's plundering Satan's house. And every Christian is plundered booty brought by Jesus from Satan's house, Satan's kingdom. Listen to two passages related to this. One is 2 Corinthians 4. That the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But God, the God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 12. There we read, not just of something in the future, but something that's describing this time now as well. That great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Jesus' exorcisms are proof that that started to happen right then. But back to this accusation that the religious leaders lay on Jesus, that he's using the power of the devil in his work. How serious is that? How serious is that charge? Well, Jesus tells them, verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Well, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit or demon. Now, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, what is sometimes called the unforgivable sin, is one of the more frequent questions a pastor is asked about interpretation, what it means and how it relates to, to those who, well, to those who are concerned that they may have committed this unforgivable sin. But I bet every person that I've ever answered that question for 
has not committed it. Has not committed it. Someone said once, if you're wondering whether you've committed the unforgivable sin, you most likely haven't. You see, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit isn't really that tricky. It's actually defined in its context here. You see in verse 30, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So blasphemy of the Spirit is to attribute to the Spirit of God, that Spirit-empowered work of Christ, it's to, to attribute that to the work of Satan. It is to attribute the spirit-empowered work of Christ to the power and work of Satan. Remember, the spirit descended upon Jesus in his baptism in chapter 1. Jesus can do what he does throughout the Gospels, like cast out demons and heal, in his own power, but in God's plan, because there's a trinity, he planned to use the power of the spirit in this. He's empowered by the Spirit, to do what he does. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable, not because it's the sin that really bugs God. It's unforgivable because it gets Jesus wrong. It gets him utterly wrong, implacably wrong. If you think Jesus is satanic, then you sure don't think you can go to him for salvation. You'll never believe the gospel is real and true if you think that Jesus has not come from God. But it's also not right to think that this sin is always and irrevocably unforgivable. Paul, the apostle, was proof that this is not the always unforgivable sin. He was a blasphemer, he said. I think he used it in this way. He opposed the way of Jesus, right? He tried to, to squash out the movement. He thought Jesus was bad. Until Jesus showed up and Paul turned, he repented and believed and, and it was forgiven. There's still hope if you're alive. And yet it's not as though, we shouldn't, we shouldn't wash this down, it's not as though no one has ever committed this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Plenty of people get Jesus severely wrong. Plenty of people say he's bad, really bad. So getting Jesus wrong and rejecting him is unforgivable. But note this, even though it's not here in our passage, it's also unforgivable to think Jesus is good but only good. We'll come back to that. Fifth, the disciples. Let's talk about the disciples distinguishing marks in this last scene. Remember Jesus' family was briefly mentioned in verse 21. They concluded that he was out of his mind, and they said, let's go get him. And so now they appear in verse 31 and following as the story continues. And, and they're contrasted with true disciples. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This dismissive disregard for family seems odd even to us today in our culture. It was even more shocking in Jesus' day and culture. For them, family was life. For them, you didn't move away when you became an adult. You probably stayed even in the same house, in a multi-generational house. You not only stayed in the same house in many cases, but you stayed in the same business, the family business. If dad fished, you fished. And you didn't change when you got 18 and wanted to spread your wings or explore something new just for fun. Your family was your identity in a way that is completely foreign to us Americans in the 21st century. But Jesus knows why his family is there, why they've come. They've come to seize him, to shut him up. They're embarrassed by him. You get something of a sense of that. The disciples are on the inside. They're sitting with Jesus. The family is on the outside, and they send for him. And they stay on the outside, at least at this point in the story. Outside, inside. Well, Jesus knows why his family is there. But Jesus is also showing us, and anyone who reads this, that a spiritual identity in a spiritual family is of higher priority than physical family. This would have been enormously encouraging to those in the first century who followed Jesus and were then cut off from their family, cut off by their family. It would have been enormously encouraging to hear Jesus say, who is your family? That guy's your family. Him, he's your brother. That guy's your uncle in the Lord. That guy is your mother. That girl is your mother. Jesus couldn't have imagined we would speak in such categories today. <laughs> so what are the distinguishing marks of these true disciples here? Well, let's remember what we saw earlier. Those he called. Verse 13. He called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. A follower of Jesus is one who's called by Jesus. They come to Jesus. They came. They're not like the crowd who come, but they're not called. They come, but for the wrong reasons. They come with their own agenda. They come to get some power. They come to get some help. True followers of Jesus are not like the demons who are theologically correct, but fear and flee. True followers of Jesus don't conclude that he's crazy. They're not embarrassed by him. They don't think he's evil. In this chapter, don't we see multiplying opinions about who Jesus is, and yet an increasingly clear and inevitable divide? There's wrong stuff, and there's right. There's all kinds of wrong, but there's one right. And these true disciples here are starting to get it. They're sitting at his feet. They're with him, sitting around him. And he calls them brothers and sisters. 
They haven't rejected him because they're starting to see him aright. They follow him, and yes, they do what he says. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. But, but don't put the cart before the horse. Remember, they've come to sit with him. They've come to believe who he is and what he says. They've come to put their trust in him. They've come to believe what John said, uh, what Mark said, rather, Jesus came preaching. He came preaching, the kingdom is here and the gospel is yours. Repent and believe. In light of that, you sit around him. In light of that, you do the will of God. Those are brothers and sisters of Jesus who have been adopted into a new spiritual family. Now, here we are in Mark 3, and there's a whole lot of Bible still to the right side. Have you noticed that? There's a whole lot more to even this story, let alone the rest of the story and the rest of the Bible, or what has come after the Bible was written in ages since. The rest of the story is succinctly told by Peter in Acts 10. I'd encourage you to, to mark this well in your Bible in Acts 10 because it's such a great summary. We, we've talked before about gospel nuggets, one verse that can contain almost every necessary ingredient of the gospel, right? In him we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. That's a gospel nugget. Well, here's a gospel brick, okay? Acts 10. Verse 37, Peter's preaching, and he says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's a gospel brick, and it's gold. And those who heard it in Acts 10 believed. And verse 48 says, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That same message that same Jesus continues to be preached and believed. And Jesus continues to be followed. What a privilege we have today of observing that reality in the lives of those who will be baptized here today. But I wonder, back to C.S. Lewis's options here, is Jesus a madman? The equivalent of a man who says he's a poached egg? Is he a heretic? Is he demonic? Is he bad? Or is he the Christ? Is he God in the flesh? Is he God's son? Is he come to be the judge 
of the living and the dead. That he come to die for sins and bear the Father's wrath. If not, get rid of him. He's bad. He's bad. And most people today don't talk like this, right? If you went throughout Albuquerque and interviewed people about Jesus, most would say, he's good. He's not bad. He's a good teacher, good moral teacher. Had some good things to say. You know, he walked around. He didn't drive a diesel or something. That's good. He's green. He's not good. He's God. And he's our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Jesus, for our Jesus, our Savior, our brother, our friend. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that's in his name. Lord, we rejoice at your kindness to us in the gospel We ask for your help to sing about it. We ask for your help, Lord, to rejoice with those who are being baptized today and to rejoice in our own salvation as well. Help us for your namesake. Amen.